In many businesses, there is a rift between marketing and sales groups. The purpose of marketing is to drive potential customers to the sales department. The sales team is responsible for converting those potential customers into paying ones. Marketing departments are often seen as a drain on company revenue because money is spent to generate those sales leads. Sales departments are seen as a profit center because they close the sales, which results in revenue flowing into the company. Marketing's role in enabling sales teams to make their numbers is often questioned. I've heard it all. There aren't enough leads coming from marketing. There are too many leads for us to realistically handle. The leads we get aren't good and waste our time. The leads we get result in spending too long with prospects and I can't close enough sales in a day. If a sales team isn't making their numbers, marketing is blamed. If they exceed their numbers, marketing doesn't get any credit. This more traditional thinking toward the sales and marketing relationship has never sat well with me, so I choose not to subscribe to it. It doesn't allow for a mentality of love, serve, and lead and can breed a toxic culture which does not benefit anyone. I had always approached running my teams from the perspective of enabling everyone involved to prosper both personally and professionally, and it's this approach that allowed me to see things differently within Defenders then advocate for cultural and procedural changes in ways that empowered others and got results. This is Here We Grow, a show for growth-minded leaders looking for transformational impact, hosted by Marsha Barnes. If a company hasn't grown in three to five years, they've institutionalized failure. This is the philosophy of our guest, president and partner of Hunt Big Sales, Kara Jane Moore. In this episode of Here We Grow, Kara Jane and Marsha trade strategies for pairing marketing and sales together to foster growth rather than relying on an outmoded one-size-fits-all sales approach. Welcome to the Here We Grow podcast. I'm here today with my friend and colleague and a great business consultant that I've admired for years, Kara Jane Moore with Hunt Big Sales. Good afternoon, Kara Jane. Good afternoon, Marsha. It's great to be here. I'm glad to be here and see you. And of course, as friends, it's always good to get together. Absolutely. Especially sales and marketing friends. Absolutely. <laughs> Those should always be friends, right? They should always. They're not. Not but always. Yes, we'll they we'll get to that today. Friends. Yes, we'll talk about that and why that's important. It is very important. So, Kara Jane, uh, walk me through Hunt Big Sales and the history of the company, how you guys got started, uh, kind of your journey to where you're at today. Yeah. So, Hunt Big Sales, we're now 17 years old, and we started my brother and partner kind of had finished out a job with a company and he was working off of uh, Do Not Compete. And so he just was starting to uh, talk with some of his people in his YPO and he's figuring out how he's going to work off his non-compete. Does he want to buy a company? Does he want to you know, work for somebody? What does he want to do? So anyway, what happened is several of them wanted to hire him because in his previous four jobs, he had taken organizations from less than 10 million to well over 200 million, um, four separate times, all within four years. So about 16 years of doing this by landing very large deals. And so some of the CEOs in the YPO forum are like, hey, while you're trying to figure out what you want to do, can you kind of help us do that? And so before he knew it, he had a business. And I stepped in very shortly after that and kind of was on the 
operations side of the business, although my background is all sales. Tom's background was all operations, and he was more um, client-facing and the main consultant at the time. And uh, so that's kind of how the business grew. And before you knew it, we had clients and speaking engagements. And, and then Tom launched his book in 2007, Whale Hunting, and it kind of grew from there. So that's kind of how we got to here. Wow. You know, years ago when I started Valve and Meter, I was calling on a prospect who had reached out to us in Dayton, Ohio. And I had um, some of our materials for Valve and Meter with me. And we employ Ashton Searcy at the time, Scriven now. And they asked me if I knew Tom Searcy. And of course, that's your brother that, right. that you have worked with for years. And they had talked about using Hunt Big Sales like 10 years prior. So this would be like a total of 17 years ago. Yeah. Must have been one of your very first clients. And they talked about how that really transformed their journey and their business and how they still use the practices that they were taught in your process. That's fantastic. I love to hear those stories because our stuff is really designed to install an asset inside an organization that stays with them forever, not tips and tricks of sales that kind of come and go with the people that you employ that come and go. Right. And in sales, it seems to come and go more often than maybe other departments. <laughs> well, I'm always told by um, sales training firms that they have clients that they've worked with for 10 or 15 years, and they keep getting called back in to do the same training. That's not what your goal is at Hunt Big Sales. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ours is really, like I said, to dis to install an asset. It's that I'm going to say a sales machine because I think people can understand that even though it's maybe an antiquated metaphor, but it's designed to install that system process machine to go hunt and land big sales. And then we teach you how to manage and read the dials of the machine so you know how your machine is operating, right? So right. if I'm going to use that as a metaphor. And so we come in, do that, and we we walk away. Our, our goal is within three years, you're set, you're able to run it, you know how to, to run it. Market shifts change buying and selling processes. True, yeah. And so we get called back in to recalibrate the machines that we installed earlier to what's going on in the marketplace today. And so we get called back in, but they're gener generally for shorter periods of time. And it's more to recalibrate to what is the market environment today and how that impacts the organization. Right. Do you get called back in when there's an internal change, like a new sales leader to get them up to date with what the process is? or Sometimes we get called in to, to bring up a new sales leader up to speed, but generally working at the executive team and primarily our clients are privately owned businesses. Mm. And so um, the owners are also very actively involved in the installation of the processes and systems. And so they're the ones that really carry it forward as part of a, an ongoing culture right. within the organization. Right. That's great. So I think that's good when you're when you're providing consulting that delivers an asset, right? Right. And it's not something that people forget and wander off of, and you have to keep going back in and redoing it. Yeah, yeah ab absolutely. I, my big belief is that consulting as an asset or a set of deliverables, there's measurables to it, right? Right. If it's Kara Jane's pretty good idea, then <laughs> over time it's going to get diluted over right. Kara Jane's pretty good idea. And some people don't learn by watching. Mm-hmm. And some people are consciously competent. Some people are unconsciously competent. And if you don't have anything hardcore that they can refer back to, to square themselves, right. to do it correctly, then over time, the whole thing becomes diluted. Right. Now, obviously, you're just a young lady in the business, but <laughs> maybe you could think back and talk to me about how has the sales environment changed over the last 
decade or so? Yeah. So well, first of all, we got to take COVID out, right? Because oh, COVID yeah. was such a huge shift in the marketplace. Now, I, I'm a big proponent in saying all COVID did was accelerate all the trends that were already happening. And so when we think about those things, that's the the work from home, right? That's some of the other challenges of managing salespeople and the shifts in buying processes. But over the last 10 years, the shifts that are happening is that with digitization, globalization, commoditization, what you're seeing is a significant drop in the transactional sales that are being done face-to-face. No more right. route salespeople, no more demo dogs, mm-hmm. you know, an increase possibly in RFPs because of the need to commoditize. Right. You got the Sarbanes-Oxley and the government's rules that are changing how buying processes have happened. Right. And all of this is talking about how has the buying process shifted? And so those are what you're seeing is changes in buying processes and also changes in buyers because of the buying process. And so that shifts sales and marketing, I'm sure, too, in that we have to match the sales processes to your customers' buying processes. And that's where you're starting to see a shift. And when you move out the salespeople at the transactional level because they no longer add that additional value, where do they add value? And that is really the larger opportunities in the marketplace. And those are the ones that are have significantly shifted as well. Right. What about who is the buyer on the buyer side? You know, used to be you you had one decision maker primarily. What yeah. are you seeing these days? Well, so when it's one decision maker, it's possibly procurement. And that's where it's already predefined. Your specs are defined, your budget's defined, your price per item is defined. And so they're just managing a process to buy, but they're not really making a buying decision, if you right. will, right? That has all been done. So buyers have gone up in the organization to higher levels based on the fact that a lot of it has been spec'd out at the lower level. And so when you go higher in the organization, you're solving a different set of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of it is you're seeing more buyers in areas of operations in different organizations because they need something custom to them. Otherwise, they could just buy it online. Right. Right. So that's part of it. When they're larger opportunities, you have several many more stakeholders involved. Somewhere right now, it's nine to 11. When we first started talking about this 10 years ago, it was five to seven buyers, then it was seven to nine buyers. We're now at nine to 11 buyers on those larger opportunities. And they're in all levels of the organization. And so that has to change the way we sell because we have to be able to speak at each level, Mm -hmm. right? And we have to speak to the specific problems or issues each person in each department has at each of those levels to move the buying committee to follow our sales committee to the end goal of whatever the solution is that we're providing. I like it that you pointed out you have to speak to each buyer at their level or area of expertise, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I've been a CEO for so long, sometimes I'll, I'll run over the director of a department, whether it's sales or marketing or operations in our conversations. Sometimes other people on our team can be more effective with those conversations than I can, just because I've forgotten the director language, you know? <laughs> well, absolutely. And that's the other thing, too, that is also shifting as we talk about the changes in sales is you need to have those peer-to-peer conversations. Right. Meaning you should be at the CEO level. You would want somebody on your team maybe at the director or VP level. Mm-hmm. But you're also going to want somebody from marketing. Maybe somebody needs to be in quality or legal because you have to have the peer conversations because of the language that they speak and the things that they're interested in. Right. For sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too. 
I could never have a conversation with you without learning something from it. <laughs> There's always, I mean, you know, a glass of wine or a coffee or a drive-by in an elevator at a meeting <laughs> always seems to yield with you. And you said something to me a few years ago at lunch. You said that you often, when you're evaluating whether it's a good fit for you with a company, that if they've not grown for two or three years, you will usually turn that work down because the company has institutionalized failure and your likelihood of getting results from them is much more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So when trying to figure out what is the right opportunities for you, we work with our organizations to build out these really detailed, and I think in, in your work you call them personas, we don't get so detailed in the persona so much as we do the ideal opportunity. So right. the ideal opportunity includes, you know, generally for us, 11 to 12 characteristics, not just is it the top logo that I want and do they have the type of revenue or, or whatever, but there's a, a series of characteristics. One of those is that they have to be ready and able to make change. Right. Right. Because what we do, like I said, we're going to install an asset and it's going to become a culture within the organization. Mm -hmm. How they work is going to change. And if they're not ready to make change, we're not going to be successful. And what we've learned is organizations that after 36 months of not reaching their goals don't know how to reach their goals. Organizations right. are perfectly designed to get the results that they're getting. Deming, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to if you want to change your results, you have to change your design and right. People at that point in time are not ready to ch they don't have a culture of change mm -hmm. which allows them to get there. And so something significant in that organization has to change for whatever I'm going to do or you do will mm -hmm. actually take place. Right. And I think if I flip that on its head, a lot of times I get challenged on why do I have to grow? Why is that, uh, why is that an indicator of success? And uh, I think that's it, that you, it keeps you, growth keeps you fluid enough. This is a planet that has been created in an organic way and bringing it under, into order is, is an assignment of mankind. And right. so things that are not growing, I don't go as far as to say if you're not growing, you're dying. But your ability to be able to move forward in the future is certainly compromised on a lot of different levels. Absolutely. Well, and like you say, it, it's natural. What do we know for sure is going to happen? Mm -hmm. Nature changes. We have four right. seasons. Things change all of the time. We've also learned very recently since pandemic, world changes are significantly faster. And they yeah. talk about how fast that happens. Well, if you don't have a culture of change, you're not, you are going to struggle now going forward because your organization isn't prepared for change. And what do we know is going to happen? Something is going to change and it is always changing. Mm -hmm. So we have to have cultures of change and cultures of change are what allow growth. Right. And why do we want to grow? Because we want to be relevant to our customers. Right. What we provide and the solutions that we offer need to be relevant if we're going to continue to be in business. So mm -hmm. I think growth is, is one and the same as being desirable to stay in business. Right. The other thing that doesn't often get talked about in line with that is the ability to rec recruit talent. If, if you're not growing, a smart candidate is not going to look at you seriously because if you're not growing, there's not opportunities for them to grow with. If you're not growing, it's more easy for you to fall into disarray and, and, and fail entirely. So I advise people all the time who are asking me about what they should be looking for in a job, find a place that's growing in a market that's growing because the opportunities for you there will be higher than being in some place that's flatlined or going backwards. Right, exactly. Well, because we've been in business, owning our own business, we all understand what it's like yeah. to have that boot on your throat. Right. And you don't want to step into an organization where it's going to take you just a few 
a little bit of time to assimilate to begin with, to get your feet running, to step in with a boot on your throat to get right. going. And talent doesn't need to do that today. I mean, everybody's looking for talent. If you're mm-hmm. talented, you don't need to step into organizations that, you know, right. you're going to struggle to start with. Right. Going back to how knowledge just drops off of you in every sentence, it seems like to me. Recently, I was working with um, someone who wanted to come in as a consultant. And I had hours and hours and hours of meetings with this person. And in that journey, I never, even just in the decision to buy, I never really learned anything, you know. And to me, that seemed like this could be a bad consultant. So you live in this consulting world. I, I live in part of it, too. Yeah. What makes a bad consultant? Well, first and foremost, I think there's a, a, a very several characteristics that make a great consultant. Right. So I guess it's a it's the reverse of what yeah, I'm going to say to some extent. Usually I look at the positive, but you, thanks for reframing me there. Yeah, yeah. No, no worries. <laughs> so I think a great consulting engagement is where the consultant has a series of measurables, behavioral, numeric, quantitative measurables of what they're going to do and how the change is going to take place. Because we're hiring consultants to build a better future, right? to solve a particular problem. And we all know that that problem is going to be solved down the road, or at least that's what we think. But we mm-hmm. need to know what are the leading indicators right. of that. So are those measurables? Are there milestones that they can measure? Can they demonstrate that they've done that in the past and the milestones at milestone points, right? So are they measurable, right, first and foremost? The second thing is as you're going through the sales process, um, and I think you and I both come from a world of abundance, mm-hmm. you know, I've got processes and systems and proprietary information, Right. But it's our ability to help somebody execute against those that makes us the differentiator, right? Right. So I want to share as much as I can about what we're doing. And so sharing wisdom, Mm -hmm. sharing ideas, sharing directional uh, where I would take you and why I would take you or question some of your ideas along the way. I always push on my prospects. I challenge them. Friction shows investment. Right. If I'm not challenging you and you're not pushing back, then I'm not sure you're invested in the ideas that were going on. So I think good consultants share what they're what they're doing, some of their knowledge up front, because they're not afraid that you're going to take it because you're hiring them for the implementation of it, right? right? To get the outcomes and that they're measurable. So many times people have had bad consulting engagements because they didn't have a clear outcome of what they wanted the engagement to produce and in what time frame to do so. Right. And so then it gets all done and they don't have what they want. And the consultant given them all the information, but they don't have the outcomes. And you didn't hire them for the information, you hired them for the outcomes. Right. I've seen too, in the teams that I've worked on when we've brought consulting in, that you can be bad at using consulting. Oh, absolutely. So um, the examples that I've seen here is there might be those nine to 11 people who weighed in on the buying process, right? They all go away but one and you have one connection into that business. And now that person is not picking it up and getting it implemented inside the business correctly. Yeah. That can be a big waste of money and time too. I, I'll give you an example. We brought in um, a consultant here at Valve and Meter a few years ago, and the the objective got too broad. Like it could help sales, it could help lead gen or account, it could help our outreach team, and it could help account managers. But we decided to start with a project on the lead gen side. And so we've got one person working with the consultant, but two others calling the consultant, asking questions and trying to figure things out along the way. And that ended up getting the consultant in trouble on our side because 
the one person wasn't that was supposed to be launching the program wasn't launching it correctly. And then the team's kind of standing around going, well, see, this isn't working, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and what one of the things that I'm going to say, no matter what we're doing in an organization, you should never be single-threaded. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and so... Yes, possibly you guys didn't handle it well, but then right. the consultant should never allow themselves to be single-threaded through one person. Right. There should have been an orchestrated way of implementing what you're going to do throughout the organization up front, even if you have only one point of contact. Mm -hmm. Then there's regular connections with you. There's regular connections with other departments because mm -hmm. as a business, we all are integrated. All right. of the departments are integrated. So whatever you're doing in one department is going to affect other departments. And so recognizing and doing the full 360, I think is important. And I think organizations who hire consultants to come fix one thing, one small thing or one small department or one small issue um, are not scoping correctly uh -huh. what they're trying to accomplish or the impact that it's going to have, which will create other problems. And therefore, without the other people's buy-in, it will get killed. Right. But another thing I've seen happen, it reminds me of Dan Sullivan's teaching from Strategic Coach, The Gap. Yes, I love the gap. Uh, where if you stand on a cruise ship deck on the day that your cruise takes off and you look into the horizon, you see that as your destination. You sail for two days and you look into the horizon, you still see that as your destination. And often we do that with our goals. We start something and we get to a point in the horizon and then we shift the goal higher than what we started with. Just human nature, especially the human nature of successful people. Yeah. I'm a huge person that does that, which yeah, creates I do too. huge stress on the teams, right? Absolutely. Because it doesn't yeah. feel like we're we're progressing or we haven't accomplished anything. Right. And that's why with the Dan Sullivan gap, you got to look behind you to see your progress. I think, you know. Yeah. Well, his big message is that I took away from it, it's progress, not perfection, right? So the consultant comes in and they get you to the place you wanted to be. But when you're halfway to that place, you shift the goal even further. And we see that a lot even on the jobs that we do with clients where it's easy to quickly forget what the state of marketing was when we got there. And 18 months later, you're like, well, why hasn't this tripled again? You know? Oh, absolutely. And and Dan, back to Dan Sullivan, progress, not perfection. Also, when you're standing in the middle mm -hmm. and you're looking at that future horizon that we've moved, right. you feel like you're at failure right? because it's it's so now so far away because you've shifted that. And so that's one of the reasons why I talk about those milestones and especially in consulting practices as well as other businesses is if you have a measurable point mm -hmm. and a milestone, you are always able to then walk back and go, this is what we've made and this is the progress we we're supposed to make by now, Right. which helps us stay anchored mm -hmm. in that progress and, and not perfection along the way. And so I just find that that's those milestones at time points of what should have accomplished right now and the right. review of that also helps your buyers, my customers, your customers, mm -hmm. not get into the failure gap. I got to, I got to end this. We're not getting anywhere. Right. And you've, you're four weeks in. Right. right. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> right. Now, something I spend quite a bit of time on in my book, Here We Grow, is the relationship between sales and marketing. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've all been there. I've worked in both departments. You and I often have some giggles and grins over how a lead is qualified by a sales team. Right. Um, <laughs> from, from the marketing team. And I've said, if I made a slide that reflected or a picture that reflected what sales calls a qualified lead, 
it would be a front door cracked open and a hand that's reaching out with a credit card in it. That's a sales qualified lead. Yes, because they are already buying before the salesperson time. I know. It's very funny because salespeople want that, the whole deal handed to them on a silver platter, right? right? And the marketing team wants every lead, no matter how qualified, to close, right? Right. Well, and they also, uh, in and I think one of the things you do significantly better than I've seen a lot of people is truly the understanding, because you've done both sides right. of the house, the understanding of what is a valuable lead to you mm -hmm. and what is a waste of time. Right. And that waste of time is very expensive mm -hmm. for the organization and very expensive for marketing dollars because you're trying to get a return on the investment as well. Right. Right. And so being so clear mm -hmm. about what is a market qualified lead, what can we get to? Right. And then what can sales get to? Mm -hmm. I think is one of the big misnomers, and that's what creates a lot of tension, unnecessarily so, because right. you and I agree. Every time we talk about it, we agree. Right. You know, so it's just a a, a misunderstanding, mm -hmm. I think, in the marketplace of a market qualified lead and what they what you can get people to, right. and a sales qualified lead and what they are responsible for before we determine it's a qualified opportunity to continue to to go after our hunt. Right. Oftentimes we see, and I know you see this too where companies are dependent on uh, salespeople creating their own leads, closing their own leads, onboarding their own leads, account managing their own leads, you know, which is just so difficult to find the person who can do all of that. That's a unicorn, right? Well, it's a unicorn and it actually, it doesn't serve the organization well. Right. And that's one of the pieces that people are like, well, I don't need three people. I only need one person. And the problem is you have lost so many opportunities because of the way you're managing the one person versus the three people, right? right. Because first, they have different skills. Mm -hmm. Second of all, they have different jobs and different measurements. Right. Third, there are three different processes oh, yeah. that have to be followed to, to get to that. And I will tell you, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I will tell you, if you are a hunter and you end up having to manage your own accounts, you get bogged down in the mire of the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. and you stop hunting. Right. And hunter needs are, to hunt. Yeah, and they're so valuable. More valuable. Keep those folks with busy with new leads and getting the new accounts on board. Absolutely. Um, I run into a very high percentage of the, uh, the B2B clients that I will talk to. What they've got is they don't have any hunters. They're, they think everybody was a hunter, but once they had a few accounts to manage, they just kind of are sitting in the existing accounts, and they're not always the best person to grow the account. No, and the hunters probably aren't the best people to grow the account. Right. You know, some of the personalities uh, Tom and I talk about when we talk about hunters versus farmers, and I know people probably have heard this analogy, but, you know, hunters love cocktail parties. They right. want to go meet new people and new things and, right. you know, um, and have the all the, the newness of the op opportunity and the conversations and the glitz mm -hmm. and all of the rest of that stuff. And farmers are family reunion people. Right. They want to go see the same people talk mm -hmm. to them, get caught up on what's going on, learn some of the new things about what's going on, but to the same people, that relationship building where hunters are, let me go kill it, throw it over the wall, move and kill. Right. And when you take hunters and you put them into farmers, then they just kind of lose that that desire, that hunger right. that made them so great as a hunter. Right. No, it's absolutely true. You and I work on some deals once in a while, which I, in my mind is the perfect solution for a lot of the companies I talk to, because often it's unknown if the sales force can close new leads. 
Yeah. There's not enough new leads that have been coming in to get a good metric on it. Uh, most of the business is coming in from word of mouth or referral. So if you're in there and you're you're putting in the process to close deals coming from marketing, it kind of removes that question mark for me. Um, on your side, you can get somebody up and ready to sell, but if there aren't any leads. There's no volume. No, there's no velocity. So they can't, yeah. they can't learn. They can't get opportunities. And we can't verify right. the language and the processes and systems that have been built mm-hmm. if there's not enough volume going through the processes to, to tweak it. Right. Last year, we started working together with a client, MCL, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, they, they manufacture um, circuit boards. Yes. Um, and they were kind of at a spot in their business where they were ready for exponential growth. They wanted to try and, try and kick it up a notch and brought you in on that assignment. Yeah, absolutely. They were, are a great opportunity, and I'm so glad that we're working on them together mm-hmm. because I was able to get them really tightened down into what are the, the opportunities they really wanted. They were getting all their leads from things that were coming into the website. And you and I know that the website wasn't converting great right. at all, but they were getting a, everything, everything mm-hmm. from universities to, right. um, to, to buyers, to people who are just curious. Right. And so by us really narrowing down, what is it the problem they solve? Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of print circuit board manufacturers out there. Right. So getting it to what are the problems they solve and for whom do they solve them uniquely, mm-hmm. we were able to really tighten the type of market you could be really successful right. in generating leads. And then we were able to tie that back through a sales process and then their CRM system. Mm-hmm. And their growth has been phenomenal over the last year. Yeah. And, it, and I think it is the hand-in-hand sales and marketing approach right. that really made the difference. And they'll tell you that, that made the difference at their right. account. Yeah. The thing that was interesting to me on that as I watched it play out, because I hit this a lot, and being in the deal with you on the sales side helped solve it. But they had a number of leads in their mind that they needed per month to hit their goal, right? And I could not get them easily off of that. It's not the number of leads that you need. It is the number of leads that are the right quality that close. Yes. It's all about the return on marketing spend because they'd had a lead generation partner who was giving them, uh, for a while, gave them the number of leads they were looking for, but they weren't closing anything from them. And then they're coming to me wanting to price that number of leads. And I said, well, I can get you that number of leads if you're not worried about closing them. But it seems to me like we got that upside down, right? Right. And, absolutely. And we kind of both had to walk them through that. And what ended up happening, your process um, put in place where their first sale ended up increasing a lot. So the client's, the client's usual process is they make an initial sale and then that client becomes a big sale as they go through their first and second years with them? Yeah. So once in a while, it would turn into a big sale, but they weren't really making that process happen intentionally. Right. Um, And in their marketplace, this speed to first buy, speed Mm -hmm. to quote is really what we talk about is speed to quote is one of the things that was really important to them is being able to keep that speed to quote. And my answer is, we're not going to slow down the speed to quote but we're going to make sure we have a clearer understanding of what we're quoting. Mm-hmm. Because if we understand better what we're quoting, we're going to land more of the quotes. Right. And we can increase the value of the quotes, the, the first order. Right. And therefore, because of who they are and how they their processes work, they were able to then pick up very quickly additional pieces. And so the average first sale increased, the average value of a first-year client increased, mm-hmm. and then the number of um, deals that 
or accounts that ended up being greater than $100,000 significantly increased because of the follow-on processes and systems that fit their marketplace and their buying processes of that Mm -hmm. marketplace. And they've closed some seven-digit deals. Absolutely. So that's always fun too. And they increased the throughput. So that's something that gets overlooked a lot of time in cash flow management is the time from the activity you've paid for, like marketing or sales consulting or sales wages, into where cash is coming in from it, because we collapse that timeline too. Yeah, absolutely. And the the other thing that I think is interesting is so many times organizations, I think, get lost on um, a salesperson or, or whatever, and that if they don't have the right number of salespeople or the right things, they can't get where they want to go. Right. And that goes back to the number of leads they have to have mm-hmm. to feed the number of salespeople they have to have. Right. And it's fascinating is that they have significantly increased their sales, significantly mm-hmm. increased their value in dollar amounts, and they've, they only have one salesperson, in fact, reduced salespeople. One salesperson and uh, 25% of what they thought the number of leads was that they needed. So Absolutely. And they and they lost a salesperson. Right. Or they, or they replaced one or two salespeople along the way yeah. inside that year because we all know salespeople kind of come and go for right, a variety right, of reasons. Right. And so they had to replace some salespeople. And that did not significantly impact their overall growth or, or revenue mm-hmm. because they had a process. Right. They had a system. They had an organization that was trained in using that process and mm-hmm. system, right? And they had a way to leverage and value the right opportunities in the right places to keep that going. Right. I would imagine, too, it makes the salespeople more sticky when there's a supply of leads that are high quality because the salesperson is actually able to make more commission. It does make a salesperson more sticky, but your salesperson has to be... No matter what, you have to have a good salesperson. Absolutely. Right? So you have to have somebody that is understanding. And a lot of sales people are now, I would say, in the last three to five years, Mm -hmm. getting more used to a strict standard process versus the old, yeah, here's a playbook, blow Mm -hmm. off the dust and take a look at it, but nobody really uses it. Right. Where now people are really, we understand that sales process is going to make the difference in the scalability of an organization. Mm -hmm. People are starting to get used to it, but we still have a lot of lone rangers out there. Right. And putting a person that's a lone ranger into a strict sales process mm-hmm. doesn't always go well. You got to get people who are used to sales process because then they thrive. Right. But if you're for the first time taking somebody who's used to doing whatever they want and make them do it this way, right. you're going to lose a few along the way. And that is yeah. just part of it. Now, I'm a huge fan of process, you know. Yeah. We always said at another company I worked at, systems are the solution, right? Yeah. The owner would say, there's no bad people, only bad process. And as good as I am at knowing what processes need to be built and building them and following them, I inevitably in sales will forget to do things, start to forget to do a thing that was important in that process. Do you have any kind of recommendations on how to audit that? Because it'll show up where I lose a deal. I'm like, you know what? I've wandered off this thing that I always do, and I need to get that back in there. It would have prevented that from happening. Yeah, no. So we have five dials in our sales process. And those dials are the people, Mm -hmm. their side and your side, the information, their side and your side, and the cycle time. And those are all specified out at each stage in the sales process. So that one thing that you normally do would be part of your sales process in a stage. Right. And it's a stage gate. So you do a checkbox. Did mm-hmm. I get these things done? And if I didn't do that at this stage, you're going to catch that. Right. Because you can't move to the next stage. Oh, that's good. And you're going to yeah. back back up, get that one thing done so you right. can move forward. That's a good idea. Yeah. All right. 
when, when we tell the team that, I'm not going to say I did it. I'm going to just say some people, right? Right, right. We won't tell the team. Yeah. We'll just, um, we'll just pass this one along as someone on the team said, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Good. I'm also a big fan of transformation. And I've sat in a very special seat the last several years with you as I've watched you transform yourself into the president at Hunt Big Sales. Can you talk to me about what that's been like? You know, I, I define transformation as a, a noticeable change in form and substance. And lady, you have delivered that all across the board. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, you know, it has been a, a huge transformation. And I think, you know, as I started in the business, I was behind the scenes running everything, mm -hmm. but I wasn't client I wasn't client facing and I wasn't facing. I, I did some sales and I, I ran the operation side. And my brothers, both Tom and Tim, were the consultants at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, along the way, we've had some medical issues in the family, and Tom has not to be able to be client-facing anymore, mm -hmm. and Tim has passed away. Right. And that all happened within a very short window. Right. And um, and at that same time, my dad was uh, had one of the several cancers. And mm -hmm. so at, there was a point in time in which it became clear that I was going to have to step into this role you know, and we talk about it happening in two rooms, in a hospital room and in a funeral home room. Yeah. And so I had to step up and take in and become leader of the organization or the organization wouldn't have gone forward, right? right? And so um, through that, you know, and I, we talk about transformation and I think transformation happens through pain, right? Right. And as I started to take on the role of being a president and understanding what what that role looked like, what mm -hmm. that needed to be, who I needed to be, I had to really understand who I was, who right. Cara Jane was. And I had the, a false narrative out in the world of what I thought I wanted people to think, and I'm right. sure I'm not the only one who's ever done that. Right. <laughs> um, but I had this false narrative that I was saying out in the marketplace. And um, as I became more and more forced to be in a position to be me right, and be me and be comfortable being me because I had to make the decisions and be that, and I couldn't do that. And then play this false narrative, right? right? And all the rest of that. I learned to grow. Mm -hmm. I, I had great mentors like you and, and other women that I relied on to talk me through. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up going through a divorce. Right. The narrative at home and the narrative in the marketplace weren't the same narrative. That's a lot. And so through that, through those painful moments, mm -hmm. through those opportunities to really learn who you are, and for me, um, being faith-based, learn right. who I am in God's light, right. right? I was able through God's blessing mm -hmm. to grow into right. this role. And he gave me the time and the space to do that growth. Yeah. Most people aren't able to do those career turns past the age of 40 or so, you know, so yeah. you had just a few more years to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that young woman that I am, right? That we keep referring to. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but you know, there's some heavy stuff. You're going through grieving and um, some, for the broken marriage and and all the labels and the and the energy that can go along with that. And yet you could clearly see you walking in the way you were created through all of that. Well it was remarkable. Thank you. It, it um I'm gonna say it's all God. You know, I leaned into my faith. I had to. I had nothing, right? We the business when I had all of a sudden no consultants, right? And I had to call all the clients and I had to tell them my brother had passed. Right. He was not gonna be able to be their consultant anymore. But I promised them that we were going to meet the commitments that we had made to them. And you did it. And we and I stepped up and I became the consultant. Yep. <laughs> and we did that. And yeah. and we made and we made all of those commitments and we 
kept many of those clients. We didn't keep all of them, but we kept many of those clients. And then we, over time, had to also transform the business. Right. There's a proverb that I uh, lean on a lot. Um, Proverbs 31.25, I believe. She is clothed with strength and dignity and laughs without fear of the future. I Hang love that. Hang on to that one for a while. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, it, because it's really been re remarkable what you've done with the company. You've co-authored some books now, too, with Tom. Yeah. I loved what you did in COVID when the world came to a stop and everybody was trying to figure out sales. You guys paused and wrote we wrote how to sell how to sell in place because it was sell in place. It, was a, it was a turn on the how to, the shelter in place right, right? right and yeah so it was so interesting because we were going in an entirely different direction with the business mm -hmm. we were going to go into a licensed consulting model at that time right. our last set of training happened that Friday before mm -hmm. the government kind of said you got to all shelter in place right. and so we that was in March 16th and by May 5th we had already launched the book Mm -hmm. And by July, we had launched the video program and to teach people. Right. They were not prepared, who were right. used to going out and having coffees and doing a variety of things. How do we do this? Right. And I had been selling over the phone hundreds of thousands of dollars oh, in yeah. consulting services at a time right. over the phone. So we just used my processes and systems and how I did that to help our clients and others make it through. Right. All right. Now, your most recent book, The Secret to Big Sales, Use Executive Language to Close More Deals, just, just came out, available yeah. on Amazon. It's really, really great book. Um, mine had a, uh, had a gold medal book tag in it with a profound quote on it. You get sent to whom you sound like. You stay with whom you impress. You close and grow those who believe. Yeah. And I just find this to be something that I'm constantly reminding us in the sales process. There's a part of the book where you and Tom are talking about the salesperson who comes back from their first meeting and go, they love me. It's going to be a deal. I'm 99% sure. And you, you know, you guys know what that really means. Yes. Um, they had a good friendship. Doesn't mean it's a deal, right? right? I call it sales theater when we're talking about the things we did and not the deals were closed that we've closed, right? For sure. What is the secret to big sales using this executive language? What, what is this problem you're solving for here? Yeah. Well, so as we talked a little bit earlier about the buyers are moving up in the organization, right? the size of the deals are getting larger that are going to require a salesperson's mm -hmm. involvement. And we have to speak to the right people at the right language at the right levels. What we were finding is our clients and many of the people we spoke to, their sales reps did not know the language of the executive suite. Right. They didn't know how to speak to them. They didn't know how to connect with them. And not at this, we're going to have coffee as friends, mm -hmm. but as an expert being able to solve their problems. Right. And so we knew that we had processes, systems, and tools to teach people how to have that conversation, mm -hmm. how to talk about money versus price, how to use the art of influence through the authority arc to establish your expertise so that you can stay with whom you impress, right? right? And then use all of your case studies and stories that mm -hmm. show that you've done this problem, solved it before, right. to get them to believe, to grow. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, too, it's important for young leaders to be able to be in environments where they can practice having those conversations, too. Absolutely. I, I know you do a lot of mentoring and helping, especially bus women business leaders, especially the younger ones, to hone their craft, right? 
But I think being in circles where we're communicating with them so they get the practice of going shoulder to shoulder with an executive is important too. Yeah, that's one of the things that I often encourage the executives that I work with. You want your team to have business acumen so that they can have these conversations, but you don't share any of the business conversations with them. Right. You need to share the business conversation with Mm -hmm. them. When I see this number in my financials, right. It, this is the analysis of that number. That's what that means for us long term. Right. In the marketplace, when we see this happening, that's the, this is the analysis of that. Mm-hmm. This is the implications of what that's going to mean long term. Right. Executives think of a better future further down. They're not thinking about the problem today. Right. And so if you're in sales, you're selling a better future no matter what you're doing. If you're talking to an executive, if you're talking to a manager, you're solving a today problem. Right. And if you're talking to a VP or a director, you're solving a, a midterm problem. It's mm-hmm. not a really a better future problem. Right. And so that language has to shift and they need to be able to shift with it. And so I love the fact that you spend time talking to your team right. about the real of the business I do with my team. And I encourage all of the CEOs I work with, talk the business with your team about Mm -hmm. business. Right. And introduce them to folks in your network and agree to see your partners. Like Fred Roman at RPM and I, you know, I'll meet with Fred anytime he likes and we're talking business acumen the whole way, right? Right. But I can send one of my people over to talk to Fred about that, and that's good training for them. And he can send one of his people over here, and I'll do the same for him, you know. So having some of those little exchange, thought exchange experiments are good, too. Right. Well, and always encourage, I I encourage everybody, go find your own mentors. Yeah. Go find people that can help guide you in understanding where where you should be going in your career, not only in your own business, but outside of your business. Mm -hmm. Hang out with folks. You know, you and I are in... Truth of Work Together and the Alliance Forum and WeBank, you know, we're out there shoulder to shoulder with all these other business people, improving ourselves, learning together and creating those relationships. And it's it's invaluable in your development. Absolutely. And because of that, we have such a wider view of what's happening in the marketplace. Right. And that's what allows us to bring our expertise into the conversations yeah. because you get to hear about what, you know, somebody's like, well, you know, such and such, this is going on. And so in construction, and I'm talking with my construction client, I can ask him that question. And he's like, how is it that you know so much about my industry? Right. Because we're out talking to multiple people in multiple industries. Right. That's great. Kara Jane, thanks so much for coming in today for this conversation. I, I knew this was going to be great. You never you never disappoint. What's the best way for someone to connect with you who wants to grow their organization by 10xing their deal value? Where should they look for you at? Well, first of all, I appreciate the softball. <laughs> That's exactly the type of people we want to talk to. Um, but I'll talk to everybody, but sure. I do like that. Right. So the best way to reach us, I'm Kara Jane mm-hmm. at Hunt Big Sales. Mm-hmm. The website is huntbigsales.com. That's H-U-N-T-B-I-G-S-A-L-E-S.com. The book is on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the website, you'll hear all about that. But there's also lots of places to say connect with Kara Jane. And I'd love to talk to you. Great. Absolutely great. And you have helped a lot of people, and it's been good to see the journey that you're on. Continue growing, girl. It's, it's been an impressive thing to watch. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for all of your guidance. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Thank you for joining us for Here We Grow. This show is proudly brought to you by Valve and Meter Performance Marketing. Be sure to check out the show notes for exclusive content that will help you become a transformational leader. For more, visit mathbeforemarketing.com slash podcast.